Heavenly Father, we like to thank you for the privilege again to gather about the feet of Jesus. We've come not to listen to the words of a man, but we've come to hear from God. We ask that you would teach us, Lord, according to your will, that you would provide um, the wisdom by the power of your Holy Spirit that is needed to teach the things that are true, that are right, and that can help show us how to impact the world with our professions. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we left off with this uh, biblical worldview. Um, I think this is, yeah, that was our last slide. And so just by recap, because I don't believe all of you were here for the first two sessions. Um, so just by recap, this is, the, this is pretty much where we built from. We saw that there is an increasing interest ever since the 1930s in merging God with the workplace. Then we saw that this dichotomy, that God was separate from the work and that work all of a sudden became this word we call secular, was a Greek concept going back to dualism and duality. This started off with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Thales, and Homer. We saw that that now in the fifth century was transferred over through Augustine and he wanted to merge Greek thought with Christian in a Christian framework. So he created this concept of dualism, which is where we get the concept of this immortality of the soul, anthropological dualism, et cetera, et cetera. So your soul is different from your body, that you are not your body. And so that there was this disintegration of the two, these components that make up a human being. Now that was further developed by Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, he took it to another level and he said he calls it grace and nature. And that the things that are higher are grace and the things that are nature are things that are lower. They're, they're, they're considered base. And he said nature are things that require no revelation to engage in. And so he said that, you know, as naturally as like a bird flies, it doesn't require any like revelation. It's just nature. It's just natural. That's what it is. But we saw that work doesn't fit that profile, yes? Because we saw that God actually has a specific work for us to do. And he expects us to put all of our hearts into that work, yes? So as a result of that, this whole concept that work requires no revelation, it doesn't work. And so we looked at this concept of integration and the fact that work is worship to God. And the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for work is avodah. You guys remember that? And we saw that in avodah, this, work, this word for work and worship in the Old Testament. And that God views work as worship. So now we had to begin to change our thinking about what we consider our work to be in the eyes of God. So when you go to work and sit at your cubicle, it is actually worship to God. And based upon how you conduct your work, this is the kind of offering you're leaving at the altar. So we concluded, right, with Cain and Abel. We looked at that. Cain's offering was excellent, right? But it wasn't acceptable. Because it was not righteous. It was not what God asked for. So the question that lingers in your and my mind is when we go to work, what is God asking for? What is God asking for? Because many of us may walk away like Cain... And we're like, Lord, how come my job doesn't have all this meaning? How come my job isn't filled with all this sense of purpose and I'm impacting the world around me? And God may look at you and say, if you do not well, shall you not be accepted? As he asked Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Are we doing the things that we 
know God expects and requires of us. So now beginning from there, we launched off into something different. He said, now how does this integration take place? And we saw that this destroys the Christian's inner peace, that they're secular and then they're sacred work. And I'll just kind of briefly go back to one of these statements. We looked at a thing. So we saw one of the greatest hindrances to the Christian's internal peace is the common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. But this state of affairs is wholly unnecessary. We have gotten ourselves on the horns of a dilemma, but the dilemma is not real. It is a creature of what? Misunderstanding. Because we misunderstand that work is worship. It's not separate from worship. You don't go to worship and go to work. You are always in worship as a Christian. And listen to me carefully with this, friends. The church's ultimate purpose is worship. Missions is not the ultimate purpose of the church. Missions exist because worship does not. I'm gonna let that sink in for a minute. The ultimate purpose of the church is worship. The ultimate purpose is not missions. Missions exist because worship does not. Are you following me? Because people are not worshiping God, that's why we go out and spread the message. Are you with me? So because if everyone, you go up to Africa, you go to Papua New Guinea, you show up in New York on the streets and people are out there having Bible studies and breaking down the 2300 day prophecy, do you feel like you need to execute a mission over there? Not at all. You're like, man, they, they got the message. When you get on the subway and everyone turns to each other and says, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Like, I was just about to ask you the same question. <laughs> Crazy, man. Yeah, man, I go to seven. Oh, you go to se seven day ministry? Yeah, okay. Sab Sabbath, yeah. <laughs> All right, guess no need here. But when you show up in certain countries and in certain cultures, you find people committing circumcisions on young girls. You find people offering up their children or virgins to appease gods. You find people walking up thousands of steps on a cathedral to pay for their sins. You find people walking through the streets of Manila with needles stuck into their flesh and every time they walk, every needle comes in at the same time to maximize the pain. And they say, what are they doing? Paying for their sins. So because true worship does not exist, this is why missions exist. And once all the world is separated from that, right? God will deal with the sinners, He takes us to heaven, and what will we do? We'll be worshiping. And guess what in heaven? You think work will be separate from worship? Secular work in heaven? No wonder the world thinks heaven's gonna be a boring place. No work, right? What are we gonna do for eternity? I'm like, you're gonna work. <laughs> But let me just answer that and then move on. Something powerful, I encourage you to read the last few chapters of the book Education. But in the last chapter of the book Education, we're reminded in the spirit of prophecy, she says that what you are on earth is what you shall be in heaven. Now that's the last chapter, and I'll follow from the first chapter of the book. True education prepares the student for the joy of service in this life and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. So when you put these two concepts together, what you are on earth is what you shall be in heaven. 
And here, true education prepares you for the joy of service in this life and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. And then she goes on to say, what you were on earth is what you shall be in heaven, and you were his witnesses on this earth. Isn't that what Jesus said? You shall be my witnesses. And what you are on earth is what you shall be in heaven. You're going to go to unfallen worlds as the witnesses of God. So that means you're going to have angels sitting at your feet while you explain the gospel. You're going to have unfalling beings sitting at your feet. Wanting to know more about how does grace work? What do you mean it wasn't your righteousness, it was Jesus' righteousness? How does that work? What do you mean you got down on your knees and prayed to God even though you've never seen him before? Angels don't know what it's like not to see God. They don't understand separation from God. What do you mean you were sad? <laughs> you were discouraged. About what? <laughs> you know he's all powerful, right? Yeah, of course I knew that. But you can only imagine that this is what it's preparing us for in the, this world of higher service. So this concept of integration means that the principles that obviously function in heaven, we must understand that our view of work must be completely different. So from there, we kind of sprint it over to the concept that sin, when God, when man had sinned, he did not curse work, he cursed the earth. Thank you, I'll take that one amen. So you have the fact that he did not tell Adam, you tilling the soil is cursed, he said the soil is cursed. So it's not that work is cursed, because work was given to man in perfection. It's the environment that was cursed. So sin affects elements of the environment of your job. It affects your co-workers, it affects the systems by which you work, it affects the mindset of your boss, it affects the principles of how we function, comp competition, all that. that is where sin plays a, play, a part in your work. But in terms of the actual work itself, it is honorable to God. Amen. It is one of the things that left Eden is work. Adam had work to do when he was perfect, and he still had work to do when he was fallen. He could get married, he could keep the Sabbath, and he could work. All those three were in Eden. So as we talked about this integration concept, we then went over and talked about Jesus integrating um, I got to hurry up and get through this because I know I'm not going to have enough time if I keep going through the whole thing. So we talked about Jesus, right? As Jesus was as perfect in his character as he was in the carpenter shop. Did you hear that? So who he was, right, is exactly what he produced in the chairs. So now we have this concept then that Jesus did not see carpentry as low, right? We talked about this. He wasn't like, oh, you know, this isn't saving anybody's soul cut a couple inches off the chair. Amen? Amen? He wasn't like, oh yeah, this table's for what? Man, whatever. When I'm called into my life purpose. Wait, wait a minute. When I'm called into my life purpose, then I'll put my heart into it. That's not what Jesus said. He took carpentry up with all his heart. He waited for the call. And we talked about this then with Joseph, right? In the development of Joseph's life. 
So we started in Potiphar's house, went into the prison, then he was second in command, and we looked at how God led him to where he wanted him to do. And that was all secular work. He was a slave, he worked in the prison, and now he's second in command of the greatest nation on the earth at that time. How? Through the providence of God, but also combined with his spirit of excellence. And we said the secret to Joseph's life was that every situation to him was about God. He did not see Potiphar as his boss, he saw Jesus as his boss. So I don't have time to continue to beat that horse, but um, as we finished off with Joseph, we talked about three practical three things, reaching here by going there. You guys remember that? So the first thing we talked about was having socials at your house. The fact that you don't have to reach people in the physical workplace itself. Reaching people in the workplace doesn't mean the actual ministry has to take place within the walls of your corporation. So that means we talked about having functions at your house. So I hope you guys brought pen and paper because we're going to actually develop a plan before you leave. What you're going to actually do when you go home. Because it's easy to sit here in the seminar and be like, yeah, yeah, tell me, Brother Sebastian. Da, 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 da. Oh, that was a great idea. And we kind of take our own notes. No, we want to actually, for the last half of the seminar, all I want to do is get you to have a plan. So when you leave GYC, you go back to work on Monday morning, you already know you're putting that plan into implementation. I'm going to start scheduling stuff at my house or wherever we can meet outside of work. I'm going to start visiting my job even when I'm not on the clock. That's something else we talked about. A lot of us, we're like nine to five, choo-choo, out. Because we don't see it as worship. You don't check out of worship. There is no clocking out. Worship is a combination of two words, worthy-ship. It means confessing the worthiness of God. When can you stop confessing his worthiness? When God stops being worthy. And guess when that will happen? Never. So we think, well, punched out. Boop, boop, boop. All right, done with that. No. If we really want to see our workplaces change, it can't just be nine to five. Amen. Even when you're off, you go back to work. For specific purposes we're going to talk about now. So in this sense, I want us to have practical plan. I want us to have a, a practical, ironed-out plan. So we talked about this division, the Greek worldview, by a chart. We talked about the biblical worldview in dealing with this idea that if it's in harmony with the design of God, if it's not in harmony with the design of God, things are innately not evil, particular things. Some things are innately evil, but there are things that God has given to us that are not innately evil. And as a result of that, it's about a perversion of that which was normally created for good. Music is one of them. You know, most liquors and alcohols are made from things that are naturally healthy for you. Potatoes, apples, fruits. Did you know that? Barley. These things are naturally healthy for you, but because of what we do to them, they become intoxicants. So something God created for the benefit of humanity, for his nutrition, all of a sudden turns into something that's like, <laughs> I mean, you can't get a more abused drug than alcohol. How do we get to that place? How do we get to that place? So, we talked about being involved in ministry outside the workplace, and now we're talking about utilizing your profession to change the world. So, is there anyone in the Bible that you can think of 
whose profession impacted the world? Who? Daniel, how did his profession impact the world? Uh huh. Whole decree came out to the whole world. Where is that found? Daniel chapter. Anybody know? Daniel chapter 4. That's his testimony, right? Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He's praising God. He gives his testimony in Daniel chapter 4. So where do we see Daniel's profession impacting the world? Huh? Daniel 2 is when we see it impacting the world? Huh? Okay. So we're talking about the fact that Babylon is this notorious nation. It's, it has great power and influence. Yes. And so because Daniel was high-ranking as an official in this kingdom that had an immense amount of influence... Therefore, his profession had impacted the world. That's what we're saying. Yes? Yes. Okay, some people are frowning. They're like unsure. Okay, any other characters in the Bible? Joseph. Joseph. How did Joseph? See, we went over Joseph's life, so I want to hear this. Uh huh. I wasn't here for the last session, but. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. Um, in faithfulness to God. Uh huh. Um, God used him. Mm hmm. Okay, now follow this. What if Joseph failed in his task? What would have happened? Starvation? Who would have starved? Israel, right? Including Jacob and his brothers. And where did Jesus come from? Judah, right? So Judah would have starved to death. Now, we obviously understand that God will find other ways, yes? So he's not going to let the plan of salvation fail. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Glory. Amen? Glory. That's important to understand. But in terms of the profession, that his role that he played, God preserved the plan of salvation through secular work. Amen. Think about that. There was an individual named Joseph. Now the question is, how did his profession impact the world then? Was it because he got the Nobel Peace Prize in Egypt? Yes or no? No. Okay, did he get uh, an award? No. Okay, what about Fortune 500, you know, top exec? He's on the cover of Egypt's Fortune magazine. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, he's got more, he's the wealthiest man in Egypt. One of, he can't be wealthier than Pharaoh. So now, Yes. Well, through his relationship with God, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and saved him from famine. Okay, interpreted Pharaoh's dream, saved him from famine. He's probably going to be considered like a savior of Egypt, yes? Yes. Now, that's why the Bible has to be very specific in the times of Moses, that there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Mm -hmm. Yes? That's right. So, this is where I'm, this is where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Even in his circumstances, where providence led him at that time. Yes. So you mentioned two things, his faithfulness and where providence led him at that time. Did Joseph understand the impact of his work? No. Until when? Until Go to Genesis 50. 
Go to Genesis 50. When you're there, say amen. amen. If you're not there, have mercy. That's right. All right, Genesis 50. Are we there? All right. So now, Joseph is talking to his brothers. His dad's about to die. You know, his brothers are scared. They just buried his father. Verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Are you, are you following what's happening? Joseph's brothers are like, Dad's dead. They just left the funeral. Just buried Jacob. They're like, man, they're driving home. They're like, man, Joseph's going to kill us. He's second in command of Egypt. We did him wrong when we were young. And now that our dad's dead, he's going to just take our lives. And they come back and they come in before and Joseph's sitting on his throne. His brothers come in. You can imagine they're probably prostrate before him. And they're like, hey, Joseph, dad said you should forgive us before he died. Those are some of his last words. Right, so you have the messenger. So now what happens is, is that he comes in and he's like, Joseph starts weeping. He's like, what kind of... He just can't believe that his brothers think he's going to kill them. So notice what the text says. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That's in Genesis chapter 50. So here it is. It is after Joseph has accomplished the purpose that he realizes why this was all supposed to happen. Are you following me? Do you know some of us may never know specifically what part we were to play in the midst of it? The problem is we want to believe and matter of fact, we do believe that success is results. It's worldly acknowledgement. It's earthly recognition. Somebody has to point at your work and say, you are doing a great job, you're impacting the world. Therefore, you're impacting the world? Is that necessarily true? How many of you can name the last five Nobel Prize winners? We're like, uh... <laughs> Barack Obama. <laughs> We never even heard of them. You may never even know that their work might have impacted your life, right? But for, you know, the intellectually astute, the other professors who might have worked with them, or whatever the case may be, they're all like, oh, wow, you got the Nobel Peace Prize. Or whatever the case may be. But this goes back to something I said before. And then I'll go to the second aspect of this. We said before that success is faithfulness. It is determined by the spirit in which the work is done. 
When you come before Jesus, according to the parable of the talents, in Matthew chapter 25, he does not say, well done, thou good and successful servant. Yes? Now, were those, were those two servants successful, yes or no? They were, right? They traded their talents and they got more. You gave me two, I have four. You gave me five, I have ten. That sounds successful to me. So he's like, I did good business. So you have this situation that they come before God. He does not say, well done, thou good and successful servants. Depart from me, you wicked and unsuccessful servant. That's not the question before God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Have you done what I asked you to do? Have you been faithful? True to the calling. So and as a result of that, when we think about our work, Jesus isn't going to ask you, how many people at your job <laughs> did you bring into the clientele? Well, you know, you are successful. You deserve to be entering into heaven. You were faithful over a few things. You know, you got us the best accounts we could find here at the firm. Mercy, Jesus. You know how many patients lived on your ward as a nurse? Therefore, you know, well done. You may be a nurse, and it seems as if your patients are the only ones dying. <laughs> I'm being dead serious. You may be a lawyer, losing every case. You may be a doctor, and it's like every time you go in for an operation, something gets botched. You're like, Lord, why me? And you and I may not understand all the dynamics of what's going on. But in the eyes of God, all he wants to know is, have you been faithful? Now, therefore, this is what that ends up leading to. When you take the faithfulness, this is what faithfulness does. Faithfulness gives God an opportunity to use you for something more powerful than you could foresee. Because this is what we said. If Joseph did not have the character in Potiphar's house to manage the house, do you think he was going to go to the prison? If Joseph was not a faithful man, he would have slept with Potiphar's wife. That would have been the end of it. God's like, can't use him. We probably wouldn't even find him in the Bible, except as a story of what to avoid. So we said before that when you and I are seeking our specific purpose from God, his number one concern is your character. Because if your purpose is so grand in the eyes of God, he cannot give you this work knowing you don't have the character to handle it. How many of us take our four-year-old children and say, here's your college tuition? Spend it how you, you know, I know you know what to do with it. Really? When the child's not developed? That's what we do? No. Even when you're college age, your parents don't trust you with the money. <laughs> I set up an account, I know the password. It's like, okay, I'll send you a check. But we combine faithfulness with the providence of God. And this is where I'm going. There was, um, coming back to Dr. Brown again that I mentioned. One of, the, one of my favorite stories that he tells is, uh, he was talking about how he was in college and he was like in this class. <laughs> And when he was in this class, he was like, man, this class is like easy, da, da, da. And he was on scholarship. 
So he's like, I'm going to study neuroscience. This is like one of the easiest classes. And it's like, everyone passes this class. It's like an automatic, you know you're going to pass, keep moving. So he's like, he's studying his behind off for this class. And he fails the class. I mean, he fails the exam. He's like, this doesn't make sense. This is not even that hard material. Comes to the second one, fails the test. His teacher pulls him into his office, the dean of the medical. He said, said hey, look, man, if you don't pass this last exam, I can't pass you. And if you don't pass the class, this is a requirement class. I'm going to have to take away your scholarship. So he's stressed out. You can imagine he talks to his wife. He says, honey, I, I just got to study. Like, I have to pass this exam. Puts his wife aside, all these things, focuses on his studies, comes back, fails the exam. The dean calls him in. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, okay, there's only one option to save your scholarship. He says, in order for you to retake the class, to replace the grade, it has to be in the summertime. He's like, that's my only time for my wife. He said, I'm sorry, either that or lose your scholarship and forget you can kiss neuroscience goodbye. He's like, man. So he goes up, found another friend of his, failed the class. They go up somewhere, I think he said Rhode Island or Vermont or something. And he's saying he got there, this is broke down <laughs> dormitory. And he gets in there and he said, man, him and his friend got in. He found out that this guy who was going to be his roommate was actually a Christian. So all the way up there, they're, they're praying together. I think they're both Adventists. He gets there and he says they get to the room and they're just like, man, it's so hot. There's no AC, all this other stuff. So they got, bow down in the room and they're like, man, we just need to pray. So they start praying. While they're praying, there are some people walking by the window. Heard them praying. Heard them praying. So they came up to the room. They said, hey, man, I heard you guys were praying. Can we join you? So then some people were walking by the room while the four of them were praying. Then more people came into the room. Said, hey, can we pray with you? So they started having prayer sessions in his room with all the medical school students, right? He had like 40, 50 people coming. It got to the point, he says, they couldn't even fit in the room. Took the class. Guess what grade he got? 100. Is it starting to click? God's providence. Sometimes our plans must fail so that God's can succeed. So you want to talk about how to use your profession to impact the world? Guess where it starts first? Faithfulness. And then when God finds a faithful accountant, a faithful nurse, a faithful manager, a faithful, I don't know what you do, carpenter, plumber, electrician, whatever the case may be, Number one, before God can determine where to place you in the course of what he wants to do with your life, you got to be faithful first. Then from there, follow this. You see in Joseph's life, because of his faithfulness, God is like, okay, this is where we're going, Joseph. Now we're in prison. I'm going to still be faithful, Lord. He comes up, second in command of Egypt. I'm still going to be faithful, Lord. And now that he's there, his brothers are there, he realizes. After he's already seating on the throne. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To save many people alive, as it is this day. Friends, it may not be until you're sitting on a throne next to Jesus in heaven that you and I realize 
all the things that we thought our life was a series of constant failures. But Ellen White says, when you get to heaven, you will discover that your life was a continuous stream of victories. Amen. But you had no idea. Hallelujah. Like Joseph. So in utilizing our professions, I want to say this first before I get to just the practical stuff. But this is where it fundamentally comes down to. Faithfulness, God's providence, and then these two things combined, Ellen White makes this statement. Success depends less upon Jesus and more upon the right use of the opportunities given. Now think about that one. Success depends less upon genius and more upon the right use of the opportunities given. Do we know of any opportunities that we have bypassed in our lives? Think about this for a second. God gave opportunities in his providence to Joseph. And success depended upon the right use of the opportunities given to him. The right use. So number one, this is where we must begin in terms of our careers, our jobs, our work impacting the world. Let Jesus do what he wants with that work. Whatever he wants with that work. And notice his concern is always faithfulness. Now, let's get to something a little more specific and practical. Recently, America, the U.S. government, had brought in a body of hackers to the White House. These are like the top hackers that they know of in the, world, in the country, North America. They brought them in and they set them up to play a hacker game. One hacker versus another hacker versus another hacker. And they had to break passwords, codes, multiple codes. Most, I mean, even to start the game, they had to crack like 10 codes just to get started. It was a timed game. You had like eight hours and whoever had the most little points, so you go in, hack into his stuff, take information, and then I have to lock it up. So it's not that I just have to get the information to hack into it. I had to create a way of protecting the information. Guess how old the oldest person there was? The oldest person there, 25? That's right. Guess how old the guy was who won? Four. <laughs> he was 19 years old. Broke into FBI files. Broke into all kind of files and then grabbed them and protected them. He was winning by a, a large margin by the end. There was another guy close second, 20 years old. This was just two weeks ago, CNN. And they said, why did you do this, America? They said, because we recognize these young men have gifts. We're dealing with the technology age that protecting information is becoming very, very vital. So we figure, rather than leaving them out there because they're so bored, they just hack into stuff just because. <laughs> and it's true. The kids would be like, yeah, you know, we used to have competitions. Let's see who can break into the, the U.S. Treasury. Hack the website, change the figures, and then change it back. Ah, just for fun. <laughs> so they said, we want to bring them to Washington. And they said, now after this competition, they said, we're going to hire at least four to five of them. And they need a lot more attempts. Yeah. 
and they need a lot more hackers. Now, here's the thing. These young men put their whole heart into computer science. That is where their passion is. That is where they just put their whole, they're faithful in that. Now, are they going to be hackers the rest of their lives? Maybe, maybe not. But this is similar to the life of Joseph. He put his whole heart into Potiphar's house, not because he believed he was going to be a slave the rest of his life. Yes? He didn't believe that. But he believed he was where God placed him to be. Albeit by mistreatment. So he was faithful. And as a result of that, we look at these hackers and we see one avenue. One avenue. I want to show you um, this thing. Because I brought this up. This computer is with hacking. Graphic design. How much do you think a corporation pays to design a brand, something you buy, like say like Nike's or like the box. How much do you think they pay for that? Yes. Yes. And how much, how much would you guess? Yes. Yes. More. I want you to think about this. I studied uh, marketing and entrepreneur, I mean uh, finance and entrepreneurship. So we had to do a business executive class. And this class was as if you were the CEO of a corporation, it's just showing you how you manage your budget and everything. And we actually had a simulation game where I had to run my own computer business. <laughs> and we had to determine how to outdo the competition. The first week after the results came back, the professor goes over the results. Your company is this, your company, this is how your sales are, da 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 da. And I remember sitting down with one of the other, the other uh, CEOs, CEOs. <laughs> and he was like, yo, man, we're sitting out in the computer lab trying to plan our stuff. And he said, man, it's all about marketing, bro. So he started off 2.5 billion. He put over half a billion dollars in marketing. His company, his company, had more sales than all the other comp companies combined in the simulation. I'm like, you put half a million what? I'm like, how about producing better? So here I am, right? The Christian Seventh-day Adventist. I'm like, we need better computers. You know, people buy quality. No, you know what the professor said? He said, Sebastian, your company, great, great quality. No one knows about it. <laughs> just like a CEO, just blasted me two minutes. <laughs> Great quality computers, no one knows about it. You see, we live in a generation where it's all about marketing. How do people view what you do? This is even spilled over into Christendom. The emerging church, all this stuff, we don't say religion anymore, we say spirituality. Because it's more acceptable. And that's how we get our marketing in. So in looking at this graphic design, do you understand, those of you who know how to design websites, posters, you have the artistic eye, photography, and all these different things, do you know how much money you can get for that? Now that's on the profit side. Now let's take that over to the non-profit side. I could take you to some non-profit websites, brochures, you'd be like, man, this is just terrible. <laughs> this is just terrible. 
And this is how this works. I was watching CNN and they said, young people that have impacted the world. You know, that immediately caught my attention, right? I'm like, I better see GYC on here. <laughs> they weren't there. But they brought in a young girl and they said, uh, so this contribution you made, tell us about it. Me and my mom were thinking about the troops and the holidays and et cetera, et cetera. So we decided to make bracelets for the troops with like the names of their loved ones and some, some other information on it, impacting the world. I'm like, for making bracelets? I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm like, that's impacting the world? Girl was 14, they said she's changing the world. Youth impacting the world. The 17 year old girl, she had a little more merit. <laughs> she, went, she went and studied chemistry in school and she found out that if you grow potatoes, a certain crop of potatoes sideways, you can actually get more potatoes. And this is like curing hunger in like major countries. High school chemistry. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. I'm watching this and I'm like, why can't we do this? Why is soy milk not Adventist? <laughs> Does that not make sense to you? Why is it that every other company that sells tofu is not Adventist? Why is it like Morningstar, all these different, it's like, <laughs> we are, like you go into play, we are vegetarian, like, that's us. We have a health message. <laughs> Not emphasis. <laughs> There's churches that have health emphasis. They don't have a health message. Completely different thing. So in looking at what you can use, your work in order to impact the world, besides what we just talked about with Joseph, with the providence of God, this is becomes practical things. This is what I mean when I say you not just working from 9 to 5. Take the work that you have. You're like, you know what, I'm a teacher, I'm going to start my own after-school group at the school for kids whose parents can't pick them up right away. Because you know what those kids are doing when their parents can't get there right away. Maybe you're a business person. I mentioned this in a previous seminar. The guy was a construction business, I mean, making multi-million dollars. You know what he does? He says, 20% of my work I do for clients who can never afford our services. and it's impacting the world. Architecture firms that build buildings for causes overseas. They say we do it pro bono. Now there may be other motives, but I'm saying at your job, in your profession, in the work that you do, have we stepped out of the box of just saying, what does it take for me just to meet the regular day-to-day -day of my requirements at my job? Step out of the box and do this, friends. You see, many of us, we get into our professions and what we're doing is our foot is in the water. That's how deep we are into our profession. We're just like, yeah, you know, I'm just playing around my foot in here until God calls me into something else. Because I don't know if this is my purpose. So I don't want to go ahead and put everything in. You see, friends, when you start putting everything in, that's when God's like, okay, I have some, another bigger pond for you. So what this begins is, is the fact that you take your profession, you take your work, and you got to jump into the lake. <laughs> Just dive in. This is my work. This is my work. And when you come home, because your work is worship, 
It's not separate. You sit down, grab a cup of tea or post them, whatever we drink in Adventism. <laughs> and you're like, you know, Lord, you pray about it. How can we use what I know to benefit those? God is very much concerned about the fatherless and the widow. Very much concerned about the poor. He had loss in the Old Testament. And for us the Seventh-day Adventists, this is where it begins. Us taking our profession and saying, I'm going to take this beyond the workplace. Those are the people that impact the world. MLK Jr. was just a minister. He was a pastor of a, of a Baptist church in Alabama. But you know what the difference was? He took his work beyond. He says, if I'm about fighting for the truth of God and for right principles and wrong, then racism I must fight for as a minister. He took his work beyond. Great speaker, powerful individual as a leader, but he says, I'm not just going to sit here and use this for my, my Dexter Baptist Church. He sat down, he said, no, I'm going to take these gifts beyond. Got superstars, all kind of people to donate to the cause. Bringing the same principles into his work. And there you see, he impacts the world. He took his work beyond. He took his work beyond the 9 to 5 block. I want to look at um, two more things. Conversion of Jan Hus. Do you guys know about this? It's in the Great Controversy, the book that pretty much led me to Christianity about seven years ago. John Hus was raised by his mother. This was during the times of the Dark Ages. While Jan Hus was being raised, he was 12 years old, and his mother, the brother, was just brilliant. So she was taking him into one of the, the, um, the schools in Catholicism. While she was leading him into the school, there were two missionaries who had been preaching this Protestant Reformation, you know, gospel saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And so while this was happening, the Catholic Church censored them. They said, look, you cannot preach anymore in the center square. I don't want to ever see you again, and if we catch you, we're going to exile you. So these two missionaries sat down and thought, and you said, you know what? We're artists. And back in those days, most of the common people couldn't read. So they had read things that we call icons. That's where the word icon comes from. So they couldn't read, so they would have pictures of Bible stories. So they decided to drew, draw a mural right in the center square. And this mural had Jesus coming in on a mule, meek, poor, and lowly. And then it had the Pope on the other side in his pomp and circumstance. And they were contrasting and say, look at Jesus, look at the Pope. How can he be the vicar of Christ? Just through the artwork. And you know that painting is what converted John Hus. Yep. Those missionaries probably never knew that they were producing one of the most powerful men in the Reformation by one piece of artwork. Faithfulness <laughs> and providence. How would you know? How would you know? The second thing I want to talk about is this faithfulness not robbing us. 
of opportunities for God to work miracles where we are. We understand this when it comes to ethical things, yes? So we say, okay, my job's like, you're going to work on Sabbath. We're like, nope, I'm not working on Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. You're like, well, how are you going to feed your family? How are you going to contribute to your bills? That's not my business. God will work a miracle if he has to. That's why we stay faithful to God. Well, let's turn that thinking around on another level. Let's go ahead. <laughs> let's go ahead and flip that and say, okay, this is not an ethical principle. This is an issue of excellence. So I'm going to put myself into this work wholeheartedly. I'm going to go ahead and be faithful in my job. Make sure I'm putting as much as I can, 100 percenter. And as I'm putting 100 percent in my work, then my goal is from here, from this 100 percenter in my work, I'm going to let God decide where he wants this thing to go. I'm not going to rob him of an opportunity to work a miracle because you know what happens to us? And I know some of us have had this experience. We start slacking on the job. We're like, you know what? We're just going through the rigmarole, in and out, nine to five, nine to five. And then you know what happens to us? An opportunity comes up and the job says, we're looking for someone to do some research on this. Sebastian, do you have anything ready? And then you start kicking yourself. And you're like, well, I started working on, I mean, but do you have something finalized? Like, we have a big client coming in. This could work out and turn into something huge. And then you, what do you have to say? I don't have it. I don't have it. Then your boss is like, okay, well, I was hoping that you had pulled something together, but if not, we'll, we'll go ahead and call Jared in. He has a presentation ready. Now God can't work a miracle. Is this illustration making sense? Yes? See, what I'm, simply, what I'm simply arguing here, what I'm simply arguing is that in order for us to truly impact on every level we can at work, it's not just on the faithfulness level, I'm not going to work on Sabbath. It has to be more than that. It's got to be, you know what? I'm not going to work on Sabbath, but the Bible does say in six days you shall do all your work. He expects you to be a hundred percenter in the week. Amen? Amen? He expects you to put all the first six days. So as a result of that, he expects you to do all your work. Don't leave it over till Sunday. All your work in six days. Just as God did all his work in six days. He didn't leave something for the eighth day. So in this sense, we say, Lord, help me to just be faithful this week in my work and in me doing this and in me being faithful in that I'm providing God an opportunity a road that he can lead me on to where exactly he wants to be glorified in what I'm doing does that make sense yes or no that's what God wants us to focus on it doesn't get more simple than that if you're looking for a step-by-step hey Sebastian just give me bullet points one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's not like that. There's no biblical precedent. The biblical precedent, as we looked at it in the life of Joseph, we could go into Esther, we can go into Daniel, we can go into other people. Paul, he's coming before Caesar. And he tells us in Philippians that he's converting people in Caesar's house. How? By getting imprisoned. Amen. <laughs> Amen. 
So you're like, this is how Paul's preaching in the very palace of Rome. How did that happen? He got arrested for what? Preaching the gospel. So you're like, uh, you think Paul could have ever found any other way to preach in Rome? Do you know how much Rome hated Christianity? You, you must have no idea. No idea how much Rome hated Christianity. And here Paul was in the very house of Caesar, converting people. How? Faithfulness, providence of God. Now, you guys have pen and paper? Yes? Okay, this is what I want you to do. First thing. First thing. We talked about the socials, use of the health message, things like this. So I want you to write down, first of all, your profession on your paper. This is my profession. So whatever you do, write down your profession. Now you have your profession. If you don't do anything, pray that God gives you a job. <laughs> what do you want your profession to be? So the first thing we're looking at is reaching here by going there. That's what we talked about in the second session. So the first thing I want you to look at is how many employees do you have? How many coworkers do you have where you work? Write down the number, names if you can remember. How many coworkers do you have? What are their names? Write it down. We're developing a plan. We're actually going to use this when we leave. This is my job. This is how many coworkers. These are their names. Now what I want you to do is put a bracket on one side of those names when you're done. Just put down three to five names. We'll just start with that. Three to five names. So I want you to put a bracket on one side of those names. And on the outside of that bracket, I want you to write the word interests. I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T-S. -E -E interests. So the first thing you're going to do with these people is figure out what are their interests. Where do, what do they do in their leisure time? That's your first goal. What are their interests? What do they like? What do they love? What do they enjoy? Where did they go last weekend? What trips did they, where did they go over the holiday? Are they married? All these different things. What are their interests? So now you have the number of coworkers. You got a few names. You wrote down their interests. Now you're not going to write what those interests are, but you're going to make sure when you go back home, that's what you're going to focus on. Now, from the interests, I want you to build a social that you can either have at your place or somewhere you can go around possible interests of these individuals. Write down at least three ideas. So let's say you know one person is interested in sports. You say, you know what, guys? Let's go to the Y, reserve a court, play volleyball. I know my coworker loves volleyball. Guys, let's pitch in. It'll be $10 a person. We'll rent the court from YMCA and we'll play a game of volleyball. Maybe we'll make department versus department. I don't know. Some people like that stuff, but you may want to be careful with the competition. 
So I want you to come up with three ideas of social things you can do with that person, those people outside of work, that are around the interests you think these people have. You can have that. Um, one thing that I have up here. Um, okay. One thing that I have up here. Try to blow this up. Is the uh, is at the Stride House. Um, actually, no. I'm sorry. When I was working for mammography, right? I worked for a breast cancer department. I was the only male, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> And so I was the uh, administration person, whatever. And so a lot of times the women thought I was the doctor because I was the guy. But I'm like, I'm not the doctor. <laughs> but during my time there, this is uh, ENH's Eviston Northwest Healthcare. I used to live in uh, Chicago. And so while I was working there, this is like shortly after I was baptized into the church, probably six, six to eight months. So I was there, people found out you know, about the health message, they came into an understanding about a lot of various different things in terms of my life, my religion, and all of a sudden on, on lunch breaks, it started off with just having conversations about health. They're like, Sebastian, you're vegan, you do this, and I'd be giving counsel to the doctor, you know, their son or their daughter would be acting up, I'm saying, well, are they on sugar, are they on dairy? I'm like, you should take them off the sugar and dairy for like two weeks, you'll see a complete difference. Lady came back to work, she was singing the praises of the health message. She's like, yo, this stuff is true. Now, she is a medical doctor. She gets paid $400,000 a year. I'm getting paid like, you know, 400 pennies. <laughs> so she comes back. All of a sudden, this leads right into connect into this conversation that not just her, but now the other doctor, the radiologist come over, the radiology techs. So all of a sudden, on lunch break one day, I had my steps to Christ. And they said, well, Sebastian, what are you reading? It's like, well, I'm just reading The Steps to Christ, you know, it's one of my favorite books. I like to read it a few times a year. And they look at me and say, really? So uh, what's it about? <laughs> I'm like, uh, <laughs> all right. So I start going into it, and as I was sharing something that had impacted my life, they said, hey, we should go through this book, you know, on lunch break, at least, you know, once or twice a week. Like, it sounds like pretty cool stuff. So I said, okay, and that's fine. So the next week, you know, I printed out copies of the chapter for everybody. We're reading through the sinner's need of Christ. Me, four doctors, three nurses on lunch break. We're eating lunch, reading Steps to Christ. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> that turned into a Bible study. So now they start asking questions. Wait. Is this really in the Bible? Does it really say that God loves us with an everlasting love? I'm like, it actually says that. Where does it say that? So now two of the nurses, one of the doctors, start bringing their Bibles. So now I'm like, look, it's in Jeremiah. Show them the verse. We start talking about God's love. Well, how does that work? I'm like, well, the first chapter is on God's love. What? You skipped the chapter? <laughs> so we go back. We start reading God's love for men. <laughs> Before the sinners need <laughs> And all I'm simply saying is that this was on the off hours. This is on lunch break. Sometimes even your lunch break can be a time because you're not on the clock. Conversations, things come up. What would you do for the weekend, etc. Oh, praise God. Thank you. Also at the Stride House in Boston, 
one thing that uh, we did was uh, two major things. The election when Obama was getting elected, you guys probably remember that. It was a very big day. <laughs> we had people at the house to like midnight, actually past midnight. <laughs> but we had food. There was a lady there, you know, she's all into yoga and the spiritualism stuff. And she's like, you know, guys, I want to make you an authentic Italian dish. We're like, great, make it. She's like, I can make it vegan, too. I mean, it's some of the best Italian food I ever had. And it was good food. She made four pots of this stuff. So we had that. Other people made stuff. This house was packed just watching the election. So as a result of this, we had time to connect with people, conversations. What are you doing? What's the purpose of this house? Oh, we're a campus ministry training program. This led into all kinds of conversations. People were coming over at 1130. It's almost over, man. I think Obama's got this. You know, da-da-da, it's over. There's no point. This guy walked in, one of our students from MIT, he had this, like, Obama T-shirt on. We're like, man, just bold, bro. Like, you're just walking around with this Obama T-shirt. I'm like, I never seen you with a T-shirt that said, I love Jesus. I'm like, and so as we were, he was like, yo, man, why are you trying to put me out there like that? I'm like, because you're a Seventh-day Adventist. And it was just... As we're having this dialogue, you know, you get to learn different things about people, but it was a powerful occasion that this is where the mindset of the world was. We turned it into a ministry opportunity. Amen. Yes? The same thing happened on MLK Day. So everyone usually gets that holiday off. So we had, you know, some food together, and then we invited some people over. And next thing you know, this guy was Buddhist. He was hanging out at the house till like 12 o'clock. We're just talking about different things. I was reading MLK's letter to a, from a Birmingham jail. All this kind of stuff. And you're like, here are occasions, here are times where we can create opportunities for ministry. And those are the ideas I want you to come up with. Amen. Now, here's, just, here's the next step. I'm out of time? Okay. I'll just have to do this last thing. I want you, as a last step, I want you to write down three types of ministries or projects you want to get involved in outside of the workplace. Are you going to go on a mission trip? Are you going to get involved with uh, GYC evangelism? Are you saying, hey, I'm going to volunteer for a department? Yes. <laughs> I'm a volunteer for a department, etc., etc. Three projects you want to get involved in outside of the workplace. So that when you go to these places, you're preparing for them, you're doing all this stuff for them, you go to them and you come back to work and people are like, yo man, you look like you got a 10. I was in Guam. And when I told people I went to Guam, you'd be amazed how easy it is to witness. Amen. You were in Guam? I'm like, yeah, I was in Guam. Wow, what were you doing in Guam? Well, since you asked. <laughs> was preaching. Was preaching. Does everyone have at least three ideas? Yes? So with this initial plan, I'm going to just type up my email up here, just so you guys can contact me, and then i got to turn this over to Chelsea. She guys got to get a break. All right, that's my email address. I want you guys to send me your testimonies because I'm still working on this seminar. I have a lot more reading to do. I have a lot more reading and research to do.
But I want you guys to send me your testimonies, send me your experiences, challenges you're having with these models. Hey, I had this social at my house. You know, what happens when people roll up with alcohol in hand? You know, stuff like that. These are practical things that can come up and have come up. <laughs> so I want to hear these stories. I want you guys to contact and be in touch with me about these different things. Now, as we conclude, I just want to say this one thing. What we've been discussing the past three sessions is trying to create opportunities for ministry. That's what we're discussing. Now, Chelsea is going to show you what to do and how to do with these people who are like, now you got them at your house. They came to eat. They enjoyed themselves. One lady ended up staying longer than everybody else, got in a spiritual discussion. She's interested in Bible studies. Or she starts talking, and you can see she clearly has a crisis going on in her life. How do I transition this into a spiritual conversation? <laughs> How do I transition this into a Bible study? And then once I now I got her to study the Bible, I'm going to start freaking out, going on audio verse to listen to any seminars about how to give Bible studies. <laughs> so Chelsea's going to add that piece because this is important. We need to be competent in sharing the word with people. Amen? Amen? So with that being said, let's go ahead and stand for prayer. We'll have a word of prayer, and then um, I think we got about a 10-minute break. Okay, you guys will forgive me. 10-minute <laughs> break, and then you come back for Chelsea's practical instruction. is going to be great. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the lessons that we learned in Joseph's life, in Jesus' life, and so many other laborers of God in the Word of God. Father, it is my prayer that this practical step plan that we have developed here, that we would go back to our jobs, we would continue to implement and to refine. Give us the creativity, give us the indomitableness, that determined spirit that will not be discouraged, that we need to truly be effective in the workplace. Father, you've already shifted our mindsets of how we view our work and how we need to approach our jobs. And now we pray that as we continue to implement these things, we now ask for your spirit to touch Chelsea's mind and that Chelsea would teach us, Lord, how to transfer these things into a spiritual environment, to a spiritual endeavor, and knowing how to use that by the grace of God to lead individuals into baptism. This is our prayer. And we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be back 4 o'clock. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.